0: Chapter Twenty Seven of The Trespasser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Trespasser, by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Twenty Seven. He hurried down the platform, wincing at every stride from the memory of Helena's last look of mute heavy yearning he gripped his fists till they trembled his thumbs were again closed under his fingers like a picture on a cloth before him he still saw helena's face white rounded in feature quite mute and expressionless just made terrible by the heavy eyes pleading dumbly He thought of her, going on and on, still at the carriage window, looking out, all through the night rushing west and west to the land of Isolde. Things began to haunt Siegmund like a delirium. He knew not where he was hurrying, always in front of him, as on a cloth, was the face of Helena while somewhere behind the cloth was Cornwall, a far-off lonely place where darkness came on intensely. Sometimes he saw a dim, small phantom in the darkness of Cornwall, very far off. Then the face of Helena, white, inanimate as a mask, with heavy eyes, came between again. He was almost startled to find himself at home, in the porch of his house. The door opened. He remembered to have heard the quick thud of feet. It was Vera. She glanced at him but said nothing. Instinctively she shrank from him. He passed without noticing her. She stood on the doormat fastening the door striving to find something to say to him you have been over an hour she said still more troubled when she found her voice shaking she had no idea what alarmed her "I," returned siegmund he went into the dining-room and dropped into his chair with his head between his hands Vera followed him nervously. "'Will you have anything to eat?' she asked. He looked up at the table, as if the supper laid there were curious and incomprehensible. The delirious lifting of his eyelids showed the whole of the dark pupils and the bloodshot white of his eyes. Vera held her breath with fear. He sank his head again and said nothing. Vera sat down and waited. The minutes ticked slowly off. Siegmund neither moved nor spoke. At last the clock struck midnight. She was weary with sleep, querulous with trouble. "'Aren't you going to bed?' she asked. Siegmund heard her without paying any attention. He seemed only to half hear. Vera waited a while, then repeated plaintively, Aren't you going to bed, father? Siegmund lifted his head and looked at her. He loathed the idea of having to move. He looked at her confusedly. Yes, I'm going, he said and his head dropped again. Vera knew he was not asleep. She dared not leave him till he was in his bedroom. Again she sat waiting. "'Father!' she cried at last. He started up, gripping the arms of his chair, trembling. "'Yes, I'm going,' he said. He rose and went unevenly upstairs, Vera followed him close behind. If he reels and falls backwards, he will kill me, she thought. But he did not fall. From habit he went into the bathroom. While trying to brush his teeth, he dropped the toothbrush onto the floor. I'll pick it up in the morning, he said, continuing deliriously. I must go to bed i must go to bed i am very tired he stumbled over the doormat into his own room vera was standing behind the unclosed door of her room she heard the sneck of his lock she heard the water still running in the bathroom trickling with the mysterious sound of water at dead of night screwing up her courage she went and turned off the tap. Then she stood again in her own room, to be near the companionable breathing of her sleeping sister, listening. Siegmund undressed quickly. His one thought was to get into bed. "'One must sleep,' he said, as he dropped his clothes on the floor." He could not find the way to put on his sleeping-jacket, and that made him pant. Any little thing that roused or thwarted his mechanical action aggravated his sickness till his brain seemed to be bursting. He got things right at last, and was in bed. Immediately he lapsed into a kind of unconsciousness. He would have called it sleep, but such it was not. All the time he could feel his brain working ceaselessly, like a machine running with unslackening rapidity. This went on, interrupted by little flickerings of consciousness, for three or four hours. Each time he had a glimmer of consciousness, he wondered if he made any noise what am I doing? What is the matter? Am I unconscious? Do I make any noise? Do I disturb them? he wondered, and he tried to cast back to find the record of mechanical sense-impression. He believed he could remember the sound of inarticulate murmuring in his throat. Immediately he remembered, he could feel his throat producing the sounds. This frightened him. Above all things, he was afraid of disturbing the family. He roused himself to listen. Everything was breathing in silence. As he listened to this silence, he relapsed into his sort of sleep. He was awakened finally by his own perspiration. He was terribly hot. The pillows, the bedclothes, his hair, all seemed to be steaming with hot vapor, while his body was bathed in sweat. It was coming light. Immediately he shut his eyes again and lay still. He was now conscious, and his brain was irritably active but his body was a separate thing, a terrible, heavy, hot thing over which he had slight control. Siegmund lay still, with his eyes closed, enduring the exquisite torture of the trickling of drops of sweat. First it would be one gathering and running its irregular, hesitating way into the hollow of his neck. His every nerve thrilled to it, yet he felt he could not move more than to stiffen his throat slightly. While yet the nerves in the track of this drop were quivering, raw with sensitiveness, another drop would start from off the side of his chest, and trickle downwards among the little muscles of his side, to drip onto the bed. It was like the running of a spider over his sensitive, moveless body. Why he did not wipe himself he did not know. He lay still and endured this horrible tickling which seemed to bite deep into him rather than make the effort to move which he loathed to do. The drops ran off his forehead down his temples those he did not mind he was blunt there but they started again in tiny vicious spurts down the sides of his chest from under his armpits down the inner sides of his thighs till he seemed to have a myriad quivering tracks of a myriad running insects over his hot wet highly sensitized body his nerves were trembling one and all with outrage and vivid suspense it became unbearable he felt that if he endured it another moment he would cry out or suffocate and burst he sat up suddenly threw away the bedclothes from which came a puff of hot steam and began to rub his pyjamas against his sides and his legs. He rubbed madly for a few moments. Then he sighed with relief. He sat on the side of the bed, moving from the hot dampness of the place where he had lain. For a moment he thought he would go to sleep. Then in an instant his brain seemed to click awake, He was still as loath as ever to move, but his brain was no longer clouded in hot vapour. It was clear. He sat bowing forward on the side of his bed, his sleeping jacket open, the dawn stealing into the room, the morning air entering fresh through the wide-flung window door. He felt a peculiar sense of guilt, of wrongness in thus having jumped out of bed it seemed to him as if he ought to have endured the heat of his body and the infernal trickling of the drops of sweat but at the thought of it he moved his hands gratefully over his sides which now were dry and soft and smooth slightly chilled on the surface perhaps for he felt a sudden tremor of shivering from the warm contact of his hands. Siegmund sat up straight. His body was reanimated. He felt the pillow and the groove where he had lain. It was quite wet and clammy. There was a scent of sweat on the bed, not really unpleasant, but he wanted something fresh and cool. Siegmund sat in the doorway that gave onto the small veranda. The air was beautifully cool. He felt his chest again, to make sure it was not clammy. It was as smooth as silk. This pleased him very much. He looked out on the night again, and was startled somewhere the moon was shining duskily in a hidden quarter of sky but straight in front of him in the northwest silent lightning was fluttering he waited breathlessly to see if it were true then again the pale lightning jumped up into the dome of the fading night it was like a white bird stirring restlessly on its nest The night was drenching thinner, greyer. The lightning, like a bird that should have flown before the arm of day, moved on its nest in the boughs of darkness, raised itself, flickered its pale wings rapidly, then sank again, loath to fly. Siegmund watched it with wonder and delight. The day was pushing aside the boughs of darkness, hunting. The poor moon would be caught when the net was flung. Siegmund went out on the balcony to look at it. There it was, like a poor white mouse, a half-moon crouching on the mound of its course. It would run nimbly over to the western slope, then it would be caught in the net, and the sun would laugh like a great yellow cat as it stalked behind, playing with its prey, flashing out its bright paws. The moon, before making its last run, lay crouched, palpitating. The sun crept forth, laughing to itself as it saw its prey could not escape the lightning however leaped low off the nest like a bird decided to go and flew away siegmund no longer saw it opening and shutting its wings in hesitation amid the disturbance of the dawn instead there came a flush the white lightning gone the brief pink butterflies of sunrise and sunset rose up from the mown fields of darkness and fluttered low in a cloud even in the west they flew in a narrow rosy swarm they separated thinned rising higher some flying up became golden some flew rosy gold across the moon the mouse moon motionless with fear Soon the pink butterflies had gone, leaving a scarlet stretch like a field of poppies in the fens. As a wind, the light of day blew in from the east, puff after puff, filling with whiteness the space which had been the night. Siegmund sat watching the last morning blowing in across the mown darkness till the whole field of the world was exposed, till the moon was like a dead mouse which floats on water. When the few birds had called in the August morning, when the cocks had finished their crowing, when the minute sounds of the early day were astir, Siegmund shivered, disconsolate. He felt tired again. Yet he knew he could not sleep. The bed was repulsive to him. He sat in his chair at the open door, moving uneasily. What should have been sleep was an ache and a restlessness. He turned and twisted in his chair. "'Where is Helena?' he asked himself, and he looked out on the morning." Everything out of doors was unreal, like a show, like a peep-show. Helena was an actress somewhere in the brightness of this view. He alone was out of the peace. He sighed petulantly, pressing back his shoulders as if they ached. His arms, too, ached with irritation, while his head seemed to be hissing with angry irritability. For a long time he sat with clenched teeth, merely holding himself in check. In his present state of irritability, everything that occurred to his mind stirred him with dislike or disgust—Helena, music, the pleasant company of friends, the sunshine of the country, each as it offered itself to his thoughts was met by an angry contempt was rejected scornfully as nothing could please or distract him the only thing that remained was to support the discord he felt as if he were a limb out of joint from the body of life there occurred to his imagination a disjointed finger swollen and discoloured, racked with pains. The question was, how should he reset himself into joint? The body of life for him meant Beatrice, his children, Helena, the comic opera, his friends of the orchestra. How could he set himself again into joint with these? It was impossible towards his family, he would henceforward have to bear himself with humility. That was a cynicism. He would have to leave Helena, which he could not do. He would have to play strenuously, night after night, the music of the saucy little Switzer, which was absurd. In fine, it was all absurd and impossible. Very well, then, that being so, what remained possible. Why, to depart, if thine hand offend thee, cut it off. He could cut himself off from life. It was plain and straightforward. But Beatrice, his young children, without him, he was bound by an agreement which there was no discrediting. To provide for them. Very well he must provide for them. And then what? Humiliation at home. Helena forsaken. Musical comedy night after night. That was insufferable. Impossible. Like a man tangled up in a rope. He was not strong enough to free himself. He could not break with Helena and return to a degrading life at home. He could not leave his children and go to Helena. Very well, it was impossible. Then there remained only one door which he could open in this prison corridor of life. Siegmund looked round the room. He could get his razor, or he could hang himself. He had thought of the two ways before, yet now he was unprovided. His portmanteau stood at the foot of the bed, its straps flung loose. A portmanteau-strap would do. Then it should be a portmanteau-strap. Very well, said Siegmund, it is finally settled. I had better write to Helena and tell her and say to her she must go on. I'd better tell her." He sat for a long time with his notebook and a pencil, but he wrote nothing. At last he gave up. "'Perhaps it is just as well,' he said to himself. "'She said she would come with me. Perhaps that is just as well. She will go to the sea.' when she knows, the sea will take her. She must know. He took a card, bearing her name and her Cornwall address from his pocket-book, and laid it on the dressing-table. She will come with me, he said to himself, and his heart rose with elation. That is a cowardice, he added looking doubtfully at the card as if wondering whether to destroy it it is in the hands of god beatrice may or may not send word to her at tintagel it is in the hands of god he concluded then he sat down again but for that fear of something after death he quoted to himself It is not fear, he said, the act itself will be horrible and fearsome, but the after-death, it's no more than struggling awake when you're sick with a fright of dreams. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. Siegmund sat thinking of the after-death, which to him seemed so wonderfully comforting, full of rest and reassurance and renewal he experienced no mystical ecstasies he was sure of a wonderful kindness in death a kindness which really reached right through life though here he could not avail himself of it siegmund had always inwardly held faith that the heart of life beat kindly towards him. When he was cynical and sulky, he knew that in reality it was only a waywardness of his. The heart of life is implacable in its kindness. It may not be moved to fluttering of pity. It swings on uninterrupted by cries of anguish or of hate siegmund was thankful for this unfaltering sternness of life there was no futile hesitation between doom and pity therefore he could submit and have faith if each man by his crying could swerve the slow sheer universe what a doom of guilt he might gain if life could swerve from its orbit for pity What terror of vacillation! And who would wish to bear the responsibility of the deflection? Siegmund thanked God that life was pitiless, strong enough to take his treasures out of his hands, and to thrust him out of the room. Otherwise, how could he go with any faith to death? Otherwise he would have felt the helpless disillusion of a youth who finds his infallible parents weaker than himself. "'I know the heart of life is kind,' said Siegmund, "'because I feel it. Otherwise I would live in defiance. But life is greater than me or anybody. We suffer.' And we don't know why, often. Life doesn't explain. But I can keep faith in it, As a dog has faith in his master. After all, life is as kind to me As I am to my dog. I have proportionately as much zest, And my purpose towards my dog is good. I need not despair of life. It occurred to Siegmund that he was meriting the old gibe of the atheists. He was shirking the responsibility of himself, turning it over to an imaginary god. Well, he said, I can't help it. I do not feel altogether self-responsible. The morning had waxed during these investigations. Sigmund had been vaguely aware of the rousing of the house. He was finally startled into a consciousness of the immediate present by the calling of Vera at his door. "'There are two letters for you, father.' He looked about him in bewilderment. The hours had passed in a trance and he had no idea of his time and place. "'Oh, all right,' he said, too much dazed to know what it meant. He heard his daughter going downstairs. Then swiftly returned over him the throbbing ache of his head and his arms, the discordant jarring of his body. "'What made her bring me the letters?' he asked himself. It was a very unusual attention. His heart replied, very sullen and shameful. She wanted to know, she wanted to make sure I was all right. Siegmund forgot all his speculations on a divine benevolence. The discord of his immediate situation overcame every harmony. He did not fetch in the letters is it so late he said is there no more time for me he went to look at his watch it was a quarter to nine as he walked across the room he trembled and a sickness made his bones feel rotten he sat down on the bed what am i going to do he asked himself By this time he was shuddering rapidly. A peculiar feeling, as if his belly were turned into nothingness, made him want to press his fists into his abdomen. He remained shuddering drunkenly, like a drunken man who is sick, incapable of thought or action. A second knock came at the door. He started with a jolt. Here is your shaving water, said Beatrice in cold tones. It's half-past nine. All right, said Siegmund, rising from the bed, bewildered. And what time shall you expect dinner? asked Beatrice. She was still contemptuous. Any time. I'm not going out, he answered. He was surprised to hear the ordinary cool tone of his own voice, for he was shuddering uncontrollably, and was almost sobbing. In a shaking, bewildered, disordered condition, he set about fulfilling his purpose. He was hardly conscious of anything he did. Try as he would, he could not keep his hands steady in the violent spasms of shuddering nor could he call his mind to think he was one shuddering turmoil yet he performed his purpose methodically and exactly in every particular he was thorough as if he were the servant of some stern will it was a mesmeric performance, in which the agent trembled with convulsive sickness. End of chapter 27 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey